Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Trojan fans and welcome to episode number 106 of the Peristyle podcast. Today is February 24th, 2009. We've got a really exciting show for you this week on the podcast. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can always drop us an email. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address. And we love talking Trojan football with the coach Harvey Hyde in the first segment. Coach, how you doing, man? What's up? I'm doing pretty good, buddy. I'm sorry I was a few minutes late today. I was in there pumping iron, getting ready for spring practice, out jogging early in the morning. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't miss any classes. I didn't have any opportunities <laughs> to improve myself. But uh, I'm out there trying to stay alive so I can enjoy the 2010 football season. Well, that's good. We want you to stay alive out there, Coach, and hopefully everything is going well. wanted to thank our sponsor for this segment, Southern California Tickets, sctickets.com is the URL or give them a call 1-800-888-7287 if you need tickets for concerts, sport events, theater, any stuff like that. But coach, it's, it's good to hear you're in good health. I've had a little run in lately with the doctor, but hopefully you're doing okay. Hey, listen, uh, I am doing okay. And uh, I hope you don't mind me asking you this on the air, but I heard about it, but I don't know about what happened. What happened? Yeah. So uh, I, thanks for all the email. I got some emails and phone calls and text messages and stuff. I just had a, uh, what they think is a benign tumor, uh, like below my left ear, and it was on uh, the, your salivary gland. It was pretty much like attached to the gland, and the the doctor's like, you know, it's probably better to go in and take it out. So they did on Friday, and I had to go under general anesthesia for a while, which I've never done before. It kind of knocks you out. I've been uh, been it's been like five days since I had the surgery, and I'm still on pain meds. I'm still kind of out of it. My face is all swollen. It's hard to even put these uh, headphones on for the podcast because like the left side of my face is kind of numb and swollen still so it slowly will come back they said and hopefully within a week or so everything will be okay but they took it out everything went okay um they have to move some muscles around in there so my jaw and everything was kind of sore for a while but slowly slowly getting better but coach i've never had to go under go under the knife like that before so it kicked my butt a little bit no it does and uh, there's always a fear factor and everyone's always worried about, you know, surgery, and they, they hear a lot of stories about surgery and so on. And, of course, you always want to wait for the biopsy reports and so on. It, 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 it's, 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 it's a strain on your body. It's a physical shock to your body. It's a mental uh, frame of mind, too, that you get into when you have surgery. You know, whenever your body gets cut on in any way, it, it shocks your body. So it takes some time. Ryan, you're going to be great. You're going to recover. Uh, you'd be positive about everything. It's like anything else. You're always positive. Your mind controls your body as it does in repairing your body, as it does getting you ready to play in a football game and so on. So you got to, you know, pick up the pieces. You got to move on. You got to say, hey, I'm in better shape now today than I was before the surgery. And you got to look at the positive sides of everything. And your surgeon will take good care of you. You got good doctors. So, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be doing this for a long time, buddy. <laughs> Thanks, Coach. Yeah, no, I think everything's going okay. It just you start falling asleep like for two hours during the day, just at random times. I couldn't believe how tired I got, and uh, last night was kind of normal. So hopefully, my schedule will get back to normal now. I'll be able to get through the whole podcast today. We couldn't let the people hang, you know. We had to do the podcast. So luckily, feeling better enough for that. But thanks for all the well wishes, Coach, and everyone else out there. We got a lot of posts on the message board and stuff, but everything should be okay. Uh, but we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about some Trojan. Football coach, we got a bunch of questions coming. You want me to you want to answer some? Yeah, certainly, I'd be happy to. All right. Well, I don't know. Was there anything first, coach? Did you wanted to uh, share from this past week? I mean, oh, they had the uh, the hearings and stuff that happened uh, over the weekend. Uh, I was kind of out of it for the entire hearings, but I tried to keep up of what was going on there. Any, I mean, obviously, no real news came out of that except the number of boxes of paperwork that they kind of accumulated during those hearings, but. Any initial thoughts on that before we get going on the questions? Well, you know, when I left the meeting, they told us that we couldn't say anything. <laughs> so I haven't, been, I haven't been able to really say much about it. So all I can do is assume what I heard, okay? 
because I wasn't actually in the meetings. I'm kidding everybody there, but uh, everyone is anxiously waiting to see exactly what the results of that hearing will be, which was in, as you said, Arizona this past weekend. I think uh, the I think his name is uh, Price, whatever the name is, the NCAA uh, investigator said it was the longest hearings they've ever had as far as number of hours and so on. And of course, uh, the way I understand it, I wasn't there. I just read the reports and hear people talking about it. Uh, certain people were there, uh, uh, Tim Floyd, uh, Pete Carroll, uh, Todd McNair, Mike Garrett, Steve Sample. Uh, I'm not sure who else, probably attorneys representing both and so on, and the NCAA and their attorneys and so on met in a room and uh, got to know each other a little better. And uh, obviously uh, both uh, presenting their sides of whatever and answering the uh, charges. And I think most of it has to do with exactly, I think the basketball portion of it, uh, I'm just guessing now. I'm just guessing that Tim Floyd wanted to clear his name. He wanted to make sure or try to convince the NCAA that he had nothing to do with anything that was he was accused of. And if it was, it was by somebody else because I'm sure he wants to coach college basketball again. So he wants to get his name cleared the same way Rick Neuheisel had to do after his situation with uh, the University of Washington and how they came down on him. And then he sued even the NCAA, and he went in the NFL, and he's back coaching at UCLA. So I think what he wanted to do is, is, is sort of clear his part of whatever they think happened. And I think that uh, that was good. And I think that the, the sanctions that Mike Garrett and the uh, university did on, on the basketball program certainly does – take care of that situation, and I think you'll find that to be uh, something that the NCAA says that was satisfactory as far as what would we have done in, in the same type of circumstances. Now, maybe even harder than what they might have done. Uh, I don't know just how much the McKnight deal had to do with this hearing. I don't really believe it had a lot to do with it. I think that's something that had already the rest of it had already happened and been investigated. I think that basically they asked about it and they probably told them what their findings were and so on. And I would want to, if I was the athletic department, I'd want to get that out of the way too. I, as Mike Garrett said, when he left the hearings, I'm glad it's over. And then, of course, I think most of the attention was on, of course, the Reggie Bush situation. Now, you know, that's four or five years ago. So, you know, a lot of it uh, has... Uh, Magnet, you know the, the 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 size of what the involvements were and who it was. Like I said last week, if it wasn't Reggie Bush, who would really know, and or care. And and I think it comes down to what they call institutional control. Uh, do you know what your athletes are? What your athletes are doing? Yeah, you 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 try to know what your athletes are doing, but it's impossible to know what everything is going on with your athletes. And I think this was USC's case on this, saying, hey, we can't go to every parent's house and find out where they're living or who they're uh, renting from or investigate this thing. First of all, it's probably uh, against uh, our rights to be able to do that. And, and some things do slip through the cracks, and we don't know what the circumstances were there or whatever. And they probably presented exactly their side of it. And the NCAA has to look and say, okay, tell us, did you know about it? And, and you didn't self-report yourself or whatever. And they, you have to convince them you didn't know. You have to convince them that if you did know, you would have self-reported uh, yourself and, and, and so on. And if they believe you, then you have a good shot at it. And then they go back and they sit in front of the committees. They discuss everything and they say, we believe what USC has done or we, be we do not believe what Todd McNair said or whatever. And then they come back and they say, basketball's fine. The McKnight deal's fine. The Reggie Bush thing thought is gray, maybe. Uh, maybe you should have had somebody following Reggie home and seeing exactly where his parents were living or not. And they might give some type of probation of some type, and they might not. So, you know, it's one of these things you really don't know. You really don't know what's happening. And for me to try to guess and say what the sanctions would be or – Zero uh, is, is ridiculous because I really don't know the circumstances. I don't know what was presented. And anybody who writes about it doesn't know any more than I do. Well, the so good th uh, I think you just have to assume, Ryan. Yeah, and the good thing, Coach, is we should know what happens in about two months. And finally, after four years of this, it should be over. At least USC fans should know what's going on. They won't be uh, – opposing coaches won't be able to neg negatively recruit against USC using – 
unknown sanctions of whatever. So, well, we should know in a couple months, hopefully at the latest, of what's going on with this whole thing. But um, we got a couple of questions too, Coach, you wanted to get to. And uh, Terry and Day, our old friend, wanted to know, is there three or four Trojan players that you think are really going to step up and fulfill their potential this year? Three or four guys that have been on the roster that maybe haven't played to their potential yet so far you think that USC could use and that could step up this year and on the roster? Anyone in particular you think of, you can think of? Well, I think there's some that have to, and I think it's going to be a lot able for people to distinguish themselves because it's wide open. There isn't any depth charge or so on. So, I think players that have to set up, uh, step up, I think Butler, the receiver, I think he should step up and become the big-time guy, the leader of the receiver core, along with Johnson. I think it's time for Johnson to emerge as a great receiver. You know, he comes to USC with all kinds of credentials out of the state of Michigan, and I think he needs to step up and become that deep threat and become the type of receiver that people fear. Uh, I think that a back that has not had the opportunity because of injuries is Mark Tyler, I would love to see Mark Tyler stay healthy. I would love to see him be able to challenge for the starting position uh, against Alan Bradford. I think that would be a tremendous battle. Not to say the others can't play, but Mark Tyler, when I saw Mark Tyler play in high school, he's a tremendous player. He's just a tremendous player. There's no question in my mind that uh, he could dominate uh, on any level. He just has to stay healthy. He got hurt in a the playoff game in high school, and since that time, he's never been healthy again. He's always had some type of nagging injury. So I'd love to see him be healthy during the spring and really distinguish himself as a type of player that everybody expected him to be. I really like to see it. I'd like to see Gallipo step up. I'd like to see him become the type of player, middle linebacker, that everybody assumed he could have been last year. He really had to play the whole time and really uh, lost a little bit of his techniques. And I think he, he played so much, if you, if you notice, I thought he got worn down. He, he really was worn down. I mean, he was tired at the end. Uh, uh, he looked like he had lost a lot of weight and, and so on. And, and I really would like to see Drell Casey emerge again and become the type of player that he was at the beginning of the season. And the defensive ends, uh, the type of talent they have there, I think it's time for them to be dominant. I don't, I don't believe last year the defensive line was a dominant force at USC as it's been in the past. It started off really pretty uh, good, and then it just sort of continuously dropped down. Yeah, it came out and of the gate so super, to... super fast, Coach. They were getting sacks all over the place, and they just kind of went back to mediocrity again. They, they really did. In fact, Casey just sort of disappeared in, in some of these players. And, and, you know, they've got – when you look at the recruiting and you look at the – when I watch them practice and the size and the quickness and the competition – you know, you just get the jump on the, the offensive tackle. They've got such great quickness that they got to dominate out there. they got to get to the quarterback and so on. So uh, I'd like to see one of those players step up, which one. They all have the capability of Nick Perry. Look what Perry did. He didn't even start, and he had, what, 10 sacks or 12 <laughs> sacks or so on. So you know he has the ability to play. I'd like to see some of these players come out that have been injured and redshirted redshirted last year. It would really be a surprise. Come back and play and live up to what everybody expected them to be. They're all great players. At least they came to SC with four- and five-star ratings, some three-stars, but very few, and, and play to their ability and motivate themselves. And I think that that's what they have to do because to compete now in the Pac-10 or any level, there is so much parity in college football that on any day – Anyone can beat anybody. So you can't have a down day. You can't have a bad day. You can't have a turnover day. You can't have any of that bad happen, or you're going to get beat. So I really think that uh, I'd like to see the intensity level, especially on defense, uh, move up and, and be at a level that it used to play at at the past. I thought the intensity level last year on defense was not at the same level that it had been in the past. And I'd like to see a continuity on the offensive side of the football. What I mean by that, rhythm. Rhythm, a pattern to what you're trying to accomplish and so on on offense. And the offensive line, I think, has got to get tougher. They've got to smash somebody in the mouth. They've got to always believe that they can get a fourth and one or third and two, whatever they need to. And I think you've got to work on that over and over and over until they believe they can do that. And, and that's got to be an important part of what they do in the spring. So 
I gave you a lot of answers to uh, one short question <laughs> answer of, of who might step up, but that's what I'm looking at, and that's right. what I think that you know what we should see happen. I think I think it will happen, Coach. Well, and thanks, Terry, for the question. There's going to be a lot of interesting position battles, and you know who knows what a guy like Jarrell Casey does now that you have Ed Orger on there or, or Joe Barry coaching up Chris Gallipo that might have a little more depth around him than he than he had last year. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens, and that's why spring football, which is going to kick off March 28th, will be so interesting this year. Uh, Coach, as far as the coaching hires go, Ed Gibson from San Diego had a question on the hiring of Clay Helton. We actually broke that on uscfootball.com. It, you know, they mentioned him as maybe a co-offensive coordinator, quarterback coach, that kind of guy. He was at Memphis for several years, offensive coordinator, went to Arkansas State but never coached a game there, only there a couple months, and is coming to USC. What, do you, what did you think about that, that hire there and any kind of thoughts on Clay Helton coming in as, as USC's next assistant coach? Well, it was one of those people uh, or a name that uh, surprised me. I, I don't know him. Uh, obviously, he's got to be a contact with uh, <clears throat> Lane Kiffin somewhere in his coaching career or his dad or Ed Ordron. Was he at Mississippi ever or no? I don't believe was he was at Mississippi. He was at Memphis for the last several years. Okay, well, they met him. Orgeron or Kiffin and that group met him when they were down at Tennessee. They I, did. I, he, I really he actually that. interviewed uh, after, before their bowl game, before they played in the Chick-fil-A Bowl. You know, Tennessee lost a bunch of assistant coaches, and Clay Helton was on the list of guys that they had actually looked at um, while they were at Tennessee. He ended up taking the Arkansas State job. Obviously, Tennessee, Kiffin ended up leaving Tennessee, but he was someone that they were considered, they, they considered him for that job. And so I think that's where the first initial contact was uh, when he was actually look, looking at Tennessee when Kiffin was there. Yeah, it had to be something like that, but you, that, that was sort of pulling the rabbit out of the hat as far as I was concerned. Nothing against the gentleman. I'll, I'll watch him coach and so on, and he's probably a great coach. And he, obviously he has recruiting ties somewhere where they felt that, uh, you know, his recruiting abilities in certain areas of the country would really benefit uh, the USC recruiting program because they are a, a very aggressive recruiting staff, which I think is absolutely a necessity today. If you don't have recruiters on your staff, you're just not going to get it done. You, you've got to go out and you recruit, then you keep them, you keep them happy, and you're happy, and you, you let them mature, and you coach them up. Remember, you, you can be a great coach, but if you don't have a great player to, to coach, you're, you're an average coach, or your your coach is going to get fired. So you got to have great players, and obviously he must recruit an area like all the other coaches that Lane has hired uh, has uh, ties in certain areas. I think that's very important. They are recruiting more aggressively uh, right now than probably the SC has done in a long time, giving a lot of offers out and so on. I know very little about the juniors that they've offered to, but obviously it worked for them at Tennessee because they were going to have a top six class in the country, and they were still they still had a very good class at Tennessee, even with Lane leaving. So I'm sure that they're going to follow that same type of pattern now and get in early on a lot of players and let them know that they're interested. So I don't, I can't tell you much about him. All I know is that I don't think he's going to be an offensive coordinator. He's going to be a quarterback coach, okay? But he has the ability to add to the thought and process of the offensive staff because he's been an offensive coordinator and he has knowledge of passing games and and rhythms and complement your routes and all the things that are necessary. That when you sit down and put a game plan together, he can contribute to that game plan and still coach the quarterbacks. I really believe Lane Kiffin's going to be the number one guy on offense, and he is going to be the guy that calls the plays and does everything that goes along with it. Now, that's very difficult to do because you have a lot of responsibilities as a head coach. You've got to be at press conferences. You've got to be at speaking engagements. You've got to be at a lot of different places. So he's going to have a lot of capable people working for him that actually will report to him and say, hey, Coach, this is what we've found, and this is the way we break it down. Your thoughts, let's sit down and put a game plan together. And they aren't going to change their game plans a lot. They're just going to talk about what they should use this week in attacking an opponent. So I, I, there's no question in my mind that, uh, that that's what's going to happen. There's no question in my mind, too, right now, that defense is ahead of offense because they've got their staff together. I'm sure the coaches are not only recruiting, but I'm sure they're having defensive meetings and putting it together 
and breaking down film clips, and they brought all their Bobby tapes with them from Tennessee, and Monty Kiffin probably has a briefcase full of all the materials that players can look at and so on, while the offensive staff is still putting the pieces together. So I really think that the defense will be ahead of the offense as far as the knowledge of their techniques. All right, Coach, thanks for that. Yeah, and we, we don't know a lot about Clay Helton. Uh, thanks for the question, Ed. He did coach, uh, you know, he, he did running backs, receivers. He's, he's been a, he's coached a lot of different positions on offense. So I think they, they, he brings a lot of versatility to the table. I mean, he coached guys like D'Angelo Williams in college. There's definitely some elements of the spread offense um, that he's coached too. So to have him be an offensive coordinator seemed like it wouldn't be the best fit. I think Justin uh, Fuentes, like he was another name that came up from TCU. Also the guy they interviewed, there were some spread elements to his you know, there's a lot of spread in his offenses as well, but it could add something, a little another dimension to the offense. I don't think it's you're going to see USC run anything but the pro style, but they, you know, maybe they will introduce some more wildcat stuff, having a guy like Dylan Baxter come in there. But yeah, we're going to have to learn a little bit more uh, about Coach Helton, uh, Ed. It's, it's just, we don't know too much about him just from what we've read and the research we've done. But uh, thanks again for the question. Coach, there's another interesting one I thought you might have some thoughts on. Uh, Mark wanted to know about remodeling the Coliseum, all the NFL talk was going on. Have you heard anything about that lately? I know that they're trying to put you know, a new NFL stadium in Industry Hills, and that would mean no NFL at the Coliseum. But have you heard about the commissions do anything to remodel the Coliseum and make it a little more up-to-date? No, I haven't heard anything about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I live in Pasadena, so, of course, I have a lot of uh, relationships with the Rose Bowl and so on. And, and I think that if a team was to come to Los Angeles, that temporarily it would play, I think, in the Rose Bowl rather than the Coliseum. I, I just think that there's not good feelings with the Coliseum, with the NFL. Uh, I know the Rose Bowl would really look forward to having them. They have suites at the Rose Bowl, which they don't have at the Coliseum. And uh, I, I just think that means a lot to an NFL team to be able to have that opportunity to have preferred seating and so on, and the Rose Bowl can do that. Not that the Coliseum and the beautiful arena to watch football in, and a lot of tradition and so on, but you've got to look at the dollar angle of it and where they can make the most money and survive during the period of time of building the new stadium. As far as how close they are to that actually happening, I think it's a long ways off. I don't think it's something right now that's going to happen. They said it was going to happen, and there'll be a team here, what, in 2000. 11 or 12 or something. I, yeah, I don't they, know. They were really aggressive in their talk about that stuff, at least on the radio that I've heard. It seems seems a little crazy and far-fetched. No, I think those people are a little bit too enthusiastic, and I don't know where they're getting their information. It's nice PR, and it's good to talk about it, and I'm sure the people that are trying to make it happen want to get the enthusiasm up of the, you know, Southern California. But, you know, they got a team right down the freeway. That if they wanted to get a team and it was going to happen, they go to the Chargers and say, hey, you know what? You move up the freeway, you bring your San Diego Charger fans with you, you got the L.A. base of people and so on. Uh, and I think before they build, it doesn't make sense. You've got to have a team. You've got to have a team that's willing to play somewhere. They could still play in San Diego possibly or come to the Rose Bowl and play or the Coliseum or whatever, Cerritos College. Who cares where they play? <laughs> until... until until they build this arena. But, you know, right now, I don't see how they're going to build this type of facility, where, where they're going to get – they've got money, don't get me wrong, but how they're going to support it with the economy the way it is and what they're building and so on. And, and obviously they're talking about two teams, which makes more sense. Obviously it does. But then you don't have down dates. You've got a team playing there every weekend during the NFL football season. And then, of course, they'll try to, you know – attract other events there, maybe other games there and so on. Like right now, my thought is, and I hate to say this, uh, because I love the national championship game in Pasadena, but I would predict someday the national championship BCS bowl game, you know where it's going to be? In Jerry Jones Stadium. Really? It's going to be there every year. It's going to have 100,000 people there every game with the big screen. And I think everything is going so much towards money that someday, I'm just saying this, someday, and I have nothing to prove this, I haven't talked to anybody, that when I sit back and look what college basketball is doing, what people are doing, and where they're playing games, and what's going on, that they are looking at what they can give some team. And right now, I would think that he would make a bid 
with television and with uh, his stadium and what he has there, that facility to host the national championship game every single year in that stadium. I could just see that in the future happening. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but, uh, you know, they could have events like that here. And, of course, they're going to have a Super Bowl here in Southern California if they get a, a new stadium. Why? The NFL always awards a, a, a city that opportunity in three or four years after they uh, build their stadium a Super Bowl. So that will be in a lot to Southern California, too. But I think I don't think it's going to happen right away. And, uh, you know, I, the question I always say, how many people really miss NFL in Southern California? How many people do you see wearing NFL jerseys around? in Southern California. Right now, you see everybody wearing SC Trojan jerseys around Southern California or Laker jerseys around Southern California. And, you know, the kids now or people now that are 20 years old have never been around an NFL team or been around draft day or watch it probably on TV uh, or been around who's the number one draft choice going to be. They don't care because they've never experienced it. So uh, I think there's a lot of marketing. It's going to be a long – I know the NFL would like to have it. Don't get me wrong because of the dollars and the viewing audience and all of that. But I think they get more viewers not having a team here because everybody's watching the NFL on Sunday. Uh, then uh, maybe they will they have a team here. Well, we'll have to see, Coach, what happens there. But... Dad, you didn't have to talk. Just did you? Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it, Coach. Yeah, I mean, you're taking care of me while I'm in my – my second Are you there? state. Yeah. Can you hear me, Coach? Yeah, I can hear you good. Now. All right. Well, hey, well, Coach, we'll let you go. Thanks very much for the uh, the insights there and answering all the questions. And we'll talk to you again next week about more Trojan football. All right. Listen, I'll tell you, you're letting me go just at the right time because we're having trouble communicating from the press box. So I'm going to call a timeout, okay? All right. Thanks, Coach. Everyone else back in 30 seconds. We're going to talk with Brian Fisher from USCFootball.com. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We have Brian Fisher on the line. Brian, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Just uh, trying to figure out how to watch some Olympic hockey, yes? my priority today yeah the the uh was it was it usa is playing the swiss is that right yeah they're playing the swiss so it, it should be an interesting game i, I know emily nerland is uh anxiously waiting for canada to play and so canada's got to play in nice russia yeah. not talk about football sometimes you know yeah no exactly it's all good emily nerland for you don't know she's a big she played college hockey big canadian fan was devastated when the u.s upset Canada in the hockey game a couple of days ago. Just crushed her. She was very upset. Yeah. It was, it was not, she was not a happy camper. All right. Well, let's get to, hopefully we'll be able to watch the game live here and NBC doesn't delay it, but that's coming up a little bit later on. Wanted to talk a little Trojan football first. And uh, first thing we talked with coach Hyde a little bit about the NCAA hearings and stuff that went on. And you brought up some interesting points um, that I would thought give you a chance to share here on the podcast about what's been going on with the University of Michigan and kind of some comparisons to what's going on with USC. Maybe you could uh, share your thoughts on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was kind of shocked yesterday, uh, and this is uh, Tuesday, when Michigan came out and, and kind of really was very public with how they're dealing with their NCAA investigation. And, and it's for a kind of similar thing that we all think that USC has been accused of. Of course, lack of institutional control always gets thrown out there when, when uh, discussing the USC case. And this, in Michigan's case, was for uh, failure to monitor. And, and that's kind of the lesser version, um, according to the NCAA, of institutional control. So them being very public with what 
they were doing and announcing the charges and the allegations in the NCAA documents can kind of provide us with a, a little look into uh, what might have been USC's case. And, and so um, they put the documents on the website. They announced uh, they really kind of attacked this full on. Um, and I think it could have been the strategy the USC could have employed it so they don't face so much negative uh, PR. And I think that's why Michigan kind of got out front of the story and was very public in dealing with uh, the NCAA investigation. But there were a few things that I, I went through all the documents. I went through some of the NCAA uh, rules and regulations and whatnot. And, and a few of the things that Michigan's turning over and that USC for sure was going to turn over were kind of interesting. You know, they had to turn over uh, a copy of the school's television contracts for the next three years. So that's kind of an interesting thing. I know one of the yeah, things that U.S. could face is, uh, you know, a possible ban on television. I don't think it will get that far, but um, that's something that the committee wanted. Um, you know, a list of official visitors uh, provided by the schools and the number of, excuse me, the number of official visits provided by the schools. And so that would be always be an interesting look uh, into recruiting. That would be a great number for uh, Gerard to get, I'm sure. Uh, and compared to his list, but there was a whole bunch of things on the list that Michigan's turning over to the NCAA that USC undoubtedly turned over too. That uh, it will be interesting to see if any of that gets out. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. We'll have to see. But it was weird that yeah, that Michigan came out and it was much more public of what they were saying. Obviously, the allegations kind of came out before, but um, it was just it was definitely handled a lot differently than it was on the USC side. And, uh, you know, I, I think the general reaction uh, among, you know, from national is, is that, yeah, it's a bad thing for Michigan, but the story here is more Rich Rodriguez being, you know, embattled versus what actually happened. And, you know, it's more of, a, I think, a PR move than anything for, you know, the Michigan University uh, to do that. And, and I think uh, I've kind of been critical, I guess, of in USC's you know, they've been very clammy. They don't want anything to, to get out. And, and I can certainly see why they want that. But from a PR standpoint, I think it's definitely hurt the university. And I think going forward, uh, getting this mess behind them is really the best thing that can happen. And we'll find out in about a month and a half uh, what will really, you know, what really happens. Right. And I think that's what I think a lot of Trojan fans out there are just ready for this to be over. It's been four or five years, whatever it's been since this started. Kind of get it out of the way. Whatever happens, happens. Let the chips fall where they may. I think it's just it's dragged the life out of some of the just the events here that maybe two, three years ago people would have been more up in arms. But it's been so long. I think people are just like ready to move on. And, and I think everybody around the country is ready to move on because they're tired of hearing, uh, you know, after a USC report, you know, USC is under investigation, blah blah blah, and, and I think more than anything, it'll it'll really affect recruiting because. Uh, as we see in the case of like Chantel Henderson, you can't recruit negatively against USC saying, oh, they're going to get hit with penalties or whatnot. It'll be out there, it'll be in the open, and it'll be done. Right. Well, we'll see what happens there. Six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is, we'll see it come down the pike. Um, some stuff that went on this week, Brian, USC announced spring football uh, will occur. I mean, obviously, we thought it was going to happen. We just wasn't, we weren't sure exactly when. Schedule's about the same. I mean, it's going to be a little bit later. Starts March 28th. Sometimes in the past they've started mid-March. Sometimes they've started late March. It will go to May 1st, which spring practice normally doesn't go into May. Uh, The big thing there is it kind of spread it out over a five-week period, having three practices a week instead of basically what they were having is four practices a week. It's a little more structured Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday all the time instead of like, you know, some Tuesdays, some Fridays, you know, they, it, they kind of moved it around in the past a little bit. So there's a little more structure, spread it out a little bit more. What did you think when that schedule came out? Anything surprising there? No, I really like the schedule. Uh, I, I think that, that, like you were saying, that structured schedule is going to play well with uh, the players, play well with the coaches, and, and even, you know, the fans that might, might or might not be able to uh, uh, attend. I really think that, uh, you know, it's very similar to what Pete Carroll was going to do. And I think we, you know, see the little uh, resemblance in, in the schedule. And the only thing that I kind of was interested in is the last couple weeks of uh, the spring practice. I, I know talking with the players, I think that's the uh, final exam 
like right around that area. Uh, and I think it'll end right before they take their exams, but still you would have thought they would have ended, you know, maybe started a week or two before just so they don't uh, get any conflicts with that. So that was maybe the only surprise. Um, you know, I know schools around the country have already started spring ball, so uh, it might be nice to have a little later one. They, they can definitely uh, uh, have more media focus on USC and be out in the headlines a little bit more. So I think that's a positive when you look at the schedule. But, uh, you know, I'm excited, and I know talking with the players, they now that there's the date set, they are, uh, they're, they're really building uh, towards when they start in spring. Yeah, and everything they're doing right now, they're doing their off-season conditioning workouts. They got new strength and conditioning coach uh, Aaron Osmus down there working, working guys out a little more strength-focused. We talked about that on the podcast before. They're doing their twice-a-week throwing sessions. They had one on Tuesday that you were down at. I, I was unable to get down there, but uh, maybe kind of share your thoughts. It was one of the bigger ones, I think, that USC's had where most of the defensive players were out there, guys throwing the ball around, and a guy like Matt Barkley, who coming back from wrist surgery, every couple of days he seems to be able to throw the ball a little bit further, a little bit further, and just getting more healthy as time goes on. Yeah, you know, I think the wrist is definitely improving, uh, and it's starting to slowly build back up uh, to where it'll be in come the spring to where it's 100%. And I think if you look at what he's doing, it's not the velocity uh, that you'd want on it, but it's slowly building week by week, and you can see that just by the type of routes that he's throwing. You know, he'll throw, uh, you know, slant routes and, and flat routes and, and kind of those shorter routes to start, you know, at the beginning of the throwing session, and then he'll, you know, start throwing some bombs and, and throw it deep. And, uh, you know, he's got nice touch on the deep balls. It's probably not as, uh, you know, on a rope, as you might say, uh, as other uh, times he can throw the deep ball. But he's really looking much better, and he's really taking command of the uh, workouts. You know, he had a little list, and he was telling the receivers, you know, what routes to run. He was telling them, you know, hey, we're going to do seven-on-seven seven now. He was very uh, – pretty much had the structure to the workout kind of planned out and, and wanted the guys to follow. And, uh, you know, everybody with the team has really responded to that and uh, I think really uh, enjoying his leadership. All right. And uh, anything else that was kind of interesting down there? I know some former players came down, Keith Rivers, Thomas Williams was down there. I, those guys come back quite a bit. And some of the USC, I was, uh, I was curious to see, if some of the alumni players would keep coming back now that Carlisle's not there and Carroll's not there, but it looks like guys are still going to come back. They, you know, they still like the school up there in LA. They'll work out with the team a little bit, go down in the weight room, whatever they do. It seems like that's still going to be an option for these players that played under Carroll. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, so many of the staff from when, you know, they were assistants and when they were player, when the players were, you know, playing at USC, uh, the assistant coaches, a lot of them are back, you know, coach O, coach Kiffin, uh, I think it's a big thing to have those alumni come back and kind of be more visible for the program because it definitely uh, helps for, to have Lane Kiffin say, hey, Keith Rivers, you know, welcome back to USC. And, and I, you know, Brian Cushing, I, I saw a post on the uh, uh, Ripsit blog, you know, detailing Brian Cushing was back. Those positive things where they can connect USC to the NFL I think will go a long way with recruits and you know, having those guys back on campus, it was helpful for the players too. I think Thomas Williams was over there, you know, kind of pointing small things out to guys like Chris Galippo. And, you know, he even got out there and, and ran a few reps and, and uh, uh, looked pretty quick to me. But we'll see uh, how many more players stop by. But it was great to see him. Stephon Johnson also stopped by. He sounded a lot better than uh, the last time I talked to him. And really moving forward, all those guys coming back is going to be a positive. Yeah, that Stephon Johnson had to be kind of an uplifting thing uh, for the USC for the USC players to kind of see him back there and the combines getting going in Indianapolis this week. So he'll have to try to show his stuff there. He had a pretty good showing at the Senior Bowl, but it, it, you're right. It just the fact that he can run around like he can and, and start to speak again, where people, I mean, they didn't think he was going to live. It's just an amazing, amazing story. It absolutely is, and you could tell everybody really kind of put a smile on their face as soon as, you know, their eyes kind of, kind of widened as soon as they saw him walk in the, the gate at Howard Jones. And, you know, he was just coming by to say goodbye and, and uh, tell everyone that he was leaving tomorrow or today for Indianapolis and, and get prepared for the combine on a, a Saturday and Sunday. 
Uh, and, you know, everybody just really likes, likes Stefan. He's uh, very personable. And obviously with the accident, I, I think everybody really uh, wants to make sure he has a, you know, a, a friend. And, and I, he was just saying goodbye to everybody, and it, it was uh, great to see him. And, and he really looks good. You know, I, I, the uh, Michael Love of the Orange County Register was saying he looks a lot more in playing shape. And, and I definitely agree with him because it, he, he looks like he can definitely go out there. And, you know, I, I think he'll be a mid-round draft pick. And uh, he'll definitely probably do well in the NFL because he's so shifty, especially down near the goal line, that, that he could find a, a niche in the NFL. Yeah, we all wish him the best, and uh, comes from a great family. It was always fun to cover at USC. He was always one of those friendly guys that you would come talk to and talk to after games and stuff, so we definitely wish him well. Um, Brian, we had a couple questions that were talking about linebackers, and I thought maybe you could weigh in on this a little bit. Justin was talking about uh, Monty Kiffin's defense and how they play linebackers, and J.D. had a question about um, Glenn Stanley, the new linebacker coming in, just seems like a, a great rush guy, a great speed guy. But a lot of the – it just there seemed like there was a lot of concern about the linebacker positions. And I know you had kind of maybe a different view than some people on this. Maybe share your thoughts on USC's linebacker situation right now. Well, I, I think everybody – I think it is a problem. Uh, you know, I, I think they don't have as many playmakers as they thought and they've had in the past. But that being said, I, I don't think it's as big a problem as everybody makes it out to. I think when healthy, Chris Gallipo, uh is one of the better linebackers in the conference, for sure. Uh, his problem is just wearing down. If they can find a re, uh, reliable backup for him so he can take some plays off, I think that will help his game tremendously. And, and I really don't feel like the Mike linebacker position is, is that big of a deal. On the outside, I, I think it's really more of a situation-type thing to where – you know, it might be a third down passing situation where a guy like Stan, uh, Staley can come in and, and make an, you know, make an impact. But uh, I think the guys they have right there, right now, uh, you know, Michael Morgan's, he's going to be a senior. He's got playing experience. Uh, you know, Malcolm Smith, all those guys uh, have that year under their belt as a starter now, and that's going to help them tremendously. So I don't think the linebacker position is, you know, as dire as some people make it out to be. I think they could find some uh, you know, linebackers out there in recruiting that can help them. And certainly guys, the inc- incoming class could uh, definitely come in and make an effort. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, I, don't, I just don't think it's as big a deal as everybody kind of makes it out to. Yeah, and I think Devon Kennard switching over there, he's going to have more experience. It's going to help a lot. And just I don't want people to under, underestimate Joe Barry coming out and helping coach this defense. Besides having Monty Kiffin, like the guru of defense, as a defensive coordinator, a guy like Joe Bear, who's worked with Monty before, uh, he just he's been really impressed me so far in a short time there, and I'm going to be watching him quite a bit uh, in spring football. But I think that combination of the talent that's there, that's young and coachable, I think they are coachable guys, and you have good coaches. I think it could you know bode pretty well for USC. Certainly, they under underachieved the last year, uh, you know, at linebackers, but there's so much, so many guys to replace. I am looking forward to watching these guys. So I think there is a, I think the limit's been raised a little bit on what these guys can do. Their potential's pretty high. Absolutely, and you look at young guys like Marquis Simmons, who could, you know, end up making an impact. You know, he certainly looks very fluid in coverage uh, in these throwing sessions, and so he could be a guy that maybe sneaks in there and, and gets to play a few snaps during the games and maybe makes an impact down the road too. So there, there's hope to be uh, found in the linebacking core, I guess, is what uh, we're both trying to say. All right. Well, Brian, we appreciate it a lot. We're going to take a quick break. We'll talk with Gerard Martinez in about 30 seconds about some recruiting. But thanks again for joining us to talk about the team. We'll talk to you again next week. No problem. Look forward to it. All right, everyone else, 30 seconds. We'll talk a little recruiting. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Peristyle Podcast from Los Angeles, California. USC Trojan fans, to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network.
It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We're going to talk a little recruiting in this segment with Gerard Martinez, uscfootball.com. Recruiting analyst, what's up, Gerard? How are you? I'm doing okay. Just uh, continuing to work, 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 work. A lot of work. A lot. Of, it's busy. I thought it was going to slow down after signing day. What happened, man? <laughs> You're telling me. It, uh, it's only picked up, actually. I mean, pretty much the last uh, few weeks has been about as busy as signing day in terms of uh, scholarship offers going out nationally. And uh, not a lot of commitments, but still, I mean, you want to see who the targets are going to be for next year. And uh, USC's wasted no time in filling up that target board and, and offering kids uh, from here to Florida to uh, all points in between. Right. Well, it's, it, we're going to look at the class of 2011 a little bit, but we have some questions. Still a few things to take care of for the class of 2010. Clay had a question about Latuan Anderson. Um, Jim had a question about uh, Marcus Jackson. So maybe we could uh, talk about those guys a little bit. What's what's kind of the status? When will USC be able to close out this class of 2010 completely? Well, they'll be able to close out the class completely when Chantrell Henderson makes a decision on his uh, letter of intent. He is committed to USC, but he's waiting to see if he can get a little more information on how the NCAA meeting went, the hearing with USC, see if there's any specific details that leak out about uh, how the NCAA uh, decides to really I mean, approach this investigation that they've had over the past five years and if there's going to be any specific sanctions that come from that. So that's probably going to be the last of the class. But Juan Anderson is scheduled to visit this week, and uh, he's a 5'11", 185-pound uh, corner slash safety from Glenville, uh, which is in Cleveland, Ohio, and he's a five-star. And uh, at this point, not a lot of people really know what's going on with him. Um, I think the local feel in the area – uh, in Cleveland, it's just, you know, why would you go to West Virginia when you have Ohio State and USC on your list? A lot of people question that. Uh, he feels pretty comfortable with West Virginia, but a lot of people have been thinking, you know, if he didn't go to Ohio State, then USC would have a great shot. It seems like Ohio State is filled up on their scholarships uh, for this class, and they've kind of moved on. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, West Virginia is still recruiting him very hard, but he hasn't signed with West Virginia yet, and you just wonder why not. So he's going to take this visit out to USC. We still hear that he's supposed to come in this weekend. Uh, he was supposed to come in, come in a couple weekends ago, but his father couldn't make it. And that's been a long process with him. But uh, this is supposed to be the week that he comes in, so we'll see what happens. Um, that should conclude his recruitment uh, visit to USC shortly after. I mean, we hear that that's not going to take – a long time for him to decide uh, after he visits USC. But, again, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, with uh, Marquise Jackson, uh, he's not really necessarily holding back on his paperwork. It's more of an issue with uh, academics and transcripts and him not being able to sign a letter of intent at this point. Uh, he's got a couple classes that he still needs to take or still needs to complete or get better grades at. It's not really – I'm uh, 100% sure which which it is. Um, it's a little vague on to whether he actually has to take and pass a certain class or he just has to get a better grade in a certain class. Uh, but we know he had some stumbling blocks with his math courses in trying to get into UCLA, and it seems like that's still being something that's kind of holding him back a little bit with signing for USC. So at this point, he's a little frustrated with the process, but he says he's trying to be patient. He's just going to wait and see what happens. Uh, but it's not necessarily an issue of him uh, not being committed to USC or not wanting to sign with USC. It's a, more of a matter of USC not being able to send him the proper paperwork to be able to sign a letter of intent at this time. All right. Thanks for those questions. Uh, that's from Clay. And from Jim, Clay had an interesting comment too, Gerard, and I think this is something that a lot of fans that maybe weren't fans of recruiting kind of follow along. He said he's fairly new to following recruiting closely, maybe the last three years or so. Should he be worried, scared, excited that he's already intensely following this 2011 class? And I think, I mean, with the new staff, I think you get a just re-energized look at some of these kids and kids that maybe Pete Carroll wasn't looking at a lot a bigger national view, a lot more offers going out. It seems like there's a lot more going on this year with the juniors coming in as opposed to years past. Well, I think the past coaching staff um, kind of had an even keel about how they wanted to give offers. Uh, obviously them being uh, with the program for six, seven, eight years, you know, depending on what coach you're talking about. Obviously, Pete Carroll had been there long enough that 
they kind of had an approach and were set in their ways a little bit with how they wanted to offer scholarships. And obviously, locally, um, they had done the research. They had the connections. uh, They had evaluated kids that were, you know, farther into their sophomore, even their freshman year. So they knew what they had locally, and they kind of had a feel for what they wanted to do nationally, what schools they weren't going to recruit, what schools they felt they could recruit, what areas they felt they had a chance to go in and compete uh, for a kid's commitment. Whereas this, this staff is coming in from the southeast. Uh, Ed Erdogan has been in the southeast for a good five years plus almost. And so he's very familiar with that area. And being from that area, I think he feels more confident in going into the backwoods of Mississippi and Louisiana and offering kids and feeling like they can compete for those kids. Uh, it's difficult. I mean, you have to remember that, yeah, uh, you have those connections, but you're still trying to bring those kids in from a farther distance, and some of them are just, you know, they don't want to leave uh, home for college. So it's a different approach. Uh, Whether Clay should be worried if he's already intently following the recruiting process, I guess that depends on two things. A, are you married? And B, do you have a job? If you have either of those, and probably he's going to get in the way at some point because this is drama. It's like a a manly soap opera, I guess you could call it. It certainly is, and we do enjoy that, Clay. We're glad you're following recruiting closely, and Gerard really does a bang-up job on it, so... You check out his articles on uscfootball.com. You're going to be up to date for sure. And, of course, his great updates on the podcast every week. It's good to hear his voice and we can kind of get hear what he has to say about stuff. And uh, there's a lot of talk about offers, Gerard. And we had a couple questions on offers. Brandon, for one, a lot of the offers lo- lately have gone out for out-of-state prospects. But he wanted to know why some of the more local talent hasn't been getting offers from USC. It looks like some of the local kids – Maybe got offers from the old coaching staff, but they're not getting the love at least yet from the new staff. And obviously the new staff has a lot to do when they first came on. So you have to give them a little bit of time. But would you shed some light on that? What do you think about the whole offer thing going out out of state versus in state? Well, again, it has a lot to do with familiarity. Um, That staff being at Tennessee, obviously they did a lot of evaluations with kids in the southeast. So the majority of the early offers that we saw go out from this staff came to kids in Georgia, uh, went to kids in Florida, and there's still some of those offers back east uh, that are filling out. I think that once you get into more of the May evaluations and and you start to get into camp situations, uh, they'll have a better feel for what they want to do locally. Um, Now, granted, it's probably going to be something that they're going to have to combat in terms of, you know, exactly what you said, you know, the local kids aren't getting the love early. UCLA will use that against them. Uh, they did that a couple years ago and had a uh, what they used what UCLA fans called the sudden, sudden Saturday, I think it was, or sudden Sunday or something. And it was a was a day where they had, I think, about ten commitments uh, from a very good players, Raheem Moore, Detone Jones, uh, and actually uh, a kid that ended up signing with USC, Juan Acabianga, who is now transferred out to BYU. So they had a, a stellar, you know, coup junior day uh, where they got uh, a bunch of different commitments and that was a a year where uh, you had um, Eric Scott who was on the coaching staff at UCLA that year uh, had a lot of connections with those city kids and they just made a move on SC and and basically told those kids hey look it you're not getting offers early from USC Um, you're not getting that love and you know we want to recruit locally and we're going to put you know all our uh, all our priorities on on making sure that the California kids are taken care of first and that was used against USC, who was kind of a little more national at that point, kind of looking abroad and, and offering kids uh, on a national level and then coming back locally with the camps and, and kind of going back on kids locally and, and a little later in the process offering those kids. And so that's probably going to be used again, and USC is going to have to combat that, and they're going to have to you know, uh, basically just explain – you know, we've been we, we, we haven't been familiar with the kids local. We haven't recruited California here in, in a you know, a while at Erdron and Lane Kiffin. And so uh, it's gonna take them a little bit of time to get back into okay, you know, what juniors do we really like and, and even what sophomores do we really like and those guys that you wanna offer early. But the other things you also have to keep in mind with these local offers as opposed to national offers you kind of got to get your foot in the door nationally with kids. If you're going to recruit a kid from Florida, from Fort Lauderdale, you got to have to put your foot in the door with him early and talk to him and build a rapport earlier because he doesn't have that opportunity to take unofficial visits every other weekend to USC. He hasn't had that opportunity in the past couple of years. He's much more familiar with those schools on the East Coast. And so 
it's more likely that he has a rapport with those coaching staff. So when you're out here in Southern California and you want to recruit Georgia and you want to recruit Florida, and this is some of the downside to it, you have to go out there early and you have to make that impression early because you have to have the process play out longer in order to build some comfort and to build uh, just you know a little bit of that relationship that gives a kid feeling you know he's confident and he goes, you know, that's coaching staff I like. I can go out to USC. I know those coaches. I feel good about those coaches. That process has to start much earlier than it does with local kids because by nature, local kids are just much more familiar with USC. They don't have to travel very far to go to USC. And also, there's more likely that they're going to commit on an offer. I mean, these kids grew up loving USC, just down the street from USC. And, you know, USC wants to make sure that, you know, they take the right kids and they have their eye on certain kids and they want the best players. And when you're recruiting at a very, very high level like they are, you can't just throw a bunch of local scholarship offers out there and, you know, kind of maybe look away from some of the things that you could get nationally if you have a player at a neat position that you really want. That's where you got to go instead. So it's a difference. I mean, you know, we've talked about it a few times in the podcast. You know, I wrote this long article on USC's recruitment uh, compared to Texas's recruitment, the strategies and how they differ. You know, Texas is very much uh, homogeneous. They're very local. They they kind of focus on the kids that are in Texas and maybe give, you know, three to five scholarship offers out nationally every year. They just don't go on a bunch of kids unless they have really specific ties to the football program or they've taken unofficial visit, unofficial visits on their own dime to Texas. And that's kind of completely opposite of the way USC's done it, especially the way they're doing it now. I mean, that was a contrast with the old staff. With this new staff, uh, it's even more uh, eclectic. I mean, they're really throwing out offers all over the place, um, even to schools that I think the previous staff, they wouldn't even go in there and recruit. So it's definitely changed. It's definitely a, a difference in strategy between Texas and USC. And, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, both have been successful to this point, you know, you, it's hard to argue with what USC has done, but it's also hard to argue with what Texas has done. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it, you can debate it either way. I guess that's why it's still an argument. All right. Brandon, thanks for that question. On the, on the same lines, Gerard, with uh, offers, Jerry had a few shorter questions on offers. What's the difference between a verbal and a written offer? Uh, well, a verbal offer is just um, a college coach calling, you know, the high school or if he's permitted to call the kid directly saying, you know, hey, we really like you. We want you to play for us. We can see you, you know, doing this, this, and this in our football program and just getting the kid excited and not necessarily following up with a written offer, which a written offer is an actual letter that is sent to the to the school or sent to uh, the the prospect's home and says that you have an official, formal, full-ride scholarship to USC or Miami or Ohio State, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, there's a, there's a difference. Usually a written offer, um, it, uh, it, it implies that you have a committable offer, um, which, you know, is not always the case because your kid can have a written offer and then in the school may – you know, have somebody that they've recruited or, or maybe just they don't like that kid anymore. They, it's not a target. They've evaluated and decided, you know, we want to go in a different direction. It doesn't mean that that written offer is like, okay, that's in stone and, you know, the kid wants to commit, he has to commit. really doesn't mean that. But it tends to send more, it implies more from the university and their interests more. Uh, verbal offers can come and go. Uh, I think we've, you know, described them as farts in the wind because that's kind of how they are. I mean, you can call a kid and say, hey, we love you and you think you're the best player in the world. And nowadays, you know what, it's just words. And it gets a kid excited or whatnot, but if it doesn't follow with a written offer, it just doesn't mean as much. So I, I think written offer, you just you get more uh, implication there, and it just means the school is that much more serious about a prospect. And then the, the last couple of questions he had, I mean, it, it, it's kind of insinuating, like, well, what happens if you send out 60 written offers and everybody accepts? And just to be clear, like, you can, the, you can only accept with a letter of intent, and that's on National Signing Day or after that. You can't do that. So there's not like you can put out all these offers. There's There's still a lot of communication going back and forth, and there can be – you know, give and take. And, you know, if the university stops, you know, started recruiting a kid, stops recruiting a kid, there's some kind of communication there. But there, there's usually don't run to that problem, right, Gerard, where there's just too many written offers out there and way too many people accepting them. That's that's not something that usually happens, right? No, it, it never really happens. Um, it, it's never happened in USC's case. Some schools have seemed to overwrite scholarships and and then you see some movement maybe on their roster, but it's kind of chicken and the egg. You don't know if they knew that these kids weren't going to be on the roster next year and they were going to have transfers, and so they oversigned, um, or vice versa. I think a perfect example of, 
you know, how the written scholarship offer works in opposed to who signs and who doesn't, Marquise Ambles was a pretty good example of a kid who had a written scholarship offer from USC over the spring and was gun-ho ready to commit to USC. In fact, he really, honestly, he did commit to USC silently, and he was coming out to USC for the Rising Stars camp in June, and he was pumped up. And there was a lot of feeling like, you know, it might be hard for USC not to have him verbally commit at that point because he was really excited about USC. They went and evaluated him in person, they being the old coaching staff under Pete Carroll, and saw something they didn't like. And so they stopped recruiting him. Now, USC doesn't pull a scholarship offer. It doesn't mean that, oh, you don't have a – they didn't call him and say, hey, you don't have a scholarship offer anymore. They basically just cut communication and say, hey, we're going to go in a different direction, and they stopped recruiting him. And that basically tells the kid, hey, you're no longer being recruited. That scholarship offer you have really doesn't mean anything anymore. And so – they go through the process. Marquis Ambles ends up committing to Tennessee with Lane Kiffin there as head coach. And then obviously, you know, we see what happens with Lane Kiffin taking the job at USC, Pete Carroll leaving. Um, you know, Marquis Ambles all of a sudden comes back to USC and recommits and signs with USC. So that's kind of a, an interesting, you know, uh, situation that happened. Uh, but it kind of shows you how that written offer committing and not committing and all that kind of stuff kind of intermingles um, and, and, in, the, in that case, you know, he was end up being able to go back to USC and have a written offer. But you don't see it very much. It's like, you know, playing the lottery. I mean, you know, you don't go and uh, and just get one lottery ticket and say, hey, you know, I think I'm going to win this time. You know, most people buy lottery tickets by the bulk. Well, going after a five-star recruit, especially if you're talking nationally in Florida or you're talking about in Georgia, sometimes that's like playing the lottery. I mean, everybody's trying to get that kid. That's the prize. And you know, you just never really know if you're going to be able to, to connect with him and, and have those intangibles and have those factors in your school that's really going to make him say, you know what, i got to travel across, across country to go play in the Cardinal Gold. You know, it, you, you feel good about it, and, you know, obviously USC is a big-time school, big-time program, and if they're able to win on the field, they've got coaches that can really sell the program, but you just never know. So, yeah, you offer that kid, but you also offer three other kids maybe in the same position that are five-star recruits. And, again, that's why offering kids out there in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, it just it's, it's an offer that goes out, and there's a little bit of hope that goes into it. I mean, there's a little bit of fishing that goes on with those kind of offers, whereas if you offer those kids locally, you, you have a much better shot at getting them. So, um, you know, you have to weigh that with, okay, who do we need to commit this early? Who do we want to commit this early? And then kind of seeing, you know, what your prospects are out there with those lottery tickets that you got in Georgia and, and Illinois and all these other places. All right. Thanks for that, Jerry. One last thing, Gerard. Uh, Clay wanted to know, uh, there's only two scholarship quarterbacks right now on campus. Uh, Jesse Scroggins will be added to that mix this summer. He'll come in for fall camp. Uh, Mitch Mustaine's a senior. What kind of quarterbacks are, are USC looking at for the class of 2011? Um, three quarterbacks come to mind right now. Uh, and two are a little different than the latter. The first two being Max Wedick, who's a, uh, a quarterback from modern-day high school. Um, he's a pro-style quarterback, play-action type quarterback, the typical kind of quarterback you would see at modern-day. Um, you know, he kind of come came in a little, a little late last season, uh, wasn't a full-time starter at the beginning of the year. Uh, he transferred in and just, you know, just wasn't really solid with the offense. And it took him a little while to get in with it. But once he did, he had a really good year. He had a tremendous playoff run. Um, so that's a, you know, local kid. Uh, you know, pretty big on USC, um, you know, post-style guy, kind of fits in that old offensive system that USC has had and you would figure we'll probably have in the future. Um, and then you also have a, a kid that's kind of local, or excuse me, a kid that's um, also a post-style kid, uh, post-style type quarterback, but uh, from all the way out in Florida, Jeff Driscoll, which, um, you know, you just don't see USC and in a lot of schools from the West Coast going out to the East Coast and going out specifically Florida to get quarterbacks. Everybody seems to come into the Pac-10 to get quarterbacks, but uh, this is a kid that said that USC's been pretty interested in him and they've been talking to him, um, you know, so we'll kind of see how that goes. But he's another kind of more post-style quarterback, um, you know, a pocket passer type guy. Uh, don't know a ton about him because, again, you know, you just don't really think about uh, 
uh, Pac-10 schools going out to the East Coast to recruit quarterbacks. Um, and then the final uh, quarterback that's gotten some, some serious interest, he actually claims a scholarship offer, haven't really been able to confirm that yet, uh, is Braxton Miller. Braxton Miller uh, is about 6'3", 190 pounds. He's a little more of a dual-threat quarterback. He's more of an athlete, plays for uh, Huber Heights, which is in Ohio. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of a different – a different spin a little bit on you know where does USD want to go in the future with quarterbacks uh, he's a little more of the athlete type so we'll have to see how serious they are with that offer and if you know they continue to, to recruit him and if they recruit him as a quarterback um, and not just an athlete so that's kind of where USC is right now. It's not a tremendous year for quarterbacks from what we've seen early on um, at the underclassmen combine in San Antonio, Texas. We were there and, and watched some of these top quarterbacks and you know, they're, they're, they're okay. We didn't see anybody that just completely blew us away. I don't see any Mark Sanchez's or Carson Palmer's or Matt Barkley's in this class at this point. Um, that doesn't mean a guy can't pop out late, but usually with quarterbacks you see them coming a, a year or two years in advance. So we'll see. It's not a year also with USC that they need – to have that big, heavy gun. I mean, they have Matt Barkley, who's only a sophomore. Then they have Jesse Scroggins coming in as a freshman. Um, this year, you're going to have to find a guy who's the right fit. You're going to have to find a kid who wants to play quarterback and wants to develop within the system a little more. And that's where a kid like you know Max Wittick may come in more because he's a guy that could sit and maybe he wants to develop a little more and is not the guy that wants to come in and play right away and be a true freshman starter uh, because it's just going to be difficult uh, to do that at USC right now. So you definitely want somebody that kind of comes in and wants to learn the system and maybe doesn't have uh, you know a, a real issue with with waiting because USC does have to recruit a quarterback this uh, this year so we'll see how it happens you know how it all plays out it might not be you know who's the best best guy we can get it might be a little more you know who's the guy that just fits the system uh, right now where we're at as a team and, and as a program all right Justin thanks for that question and uh, that's going to conclude the podcast this week Gerard thanks for answering everybody's recruiting questions we'll uh I guess we'll talk to you again next week when more more offers going out. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get we'll get up to date on all of that. Check on uscfootball.com all week for all the latest of what's going on in USC football and recruiting. You have been listening to the Peristyle Podcast. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 